G'day, my name's Andrew Lee, and I'm really pleased to welcome you to this conversation with Labor MP John Kravitz. John has been the member for Dagenham and Raynham since 2001, uh, winning it in the landslide vote of 293 votes uh, in the 2019 election. As the red wall crumbled, John managed to hold his constituency. He has just written a fascinating book called The Dignity of Labor, which is about the British Labor Party, the party that John loves, but also to some extent about the Australian Labor Party and about social democratic parties all around the world. Uh, John is a great public intellectual, uh, somebody who I've met in the, in the UK, but somebody who has also spent time in Australia. Uh, and indeed, that might have been where he got his political start. John, welcome to the conversation. <laughs> Andrew, it's great to see you again. Um, and thanks for the opportunity to kick these things around because they are generic issues that span um, progressive politics across Western market economies, you know, so it's good to have a conversation about them. Absolutely. So is it true that you uh, you got, got your uh, political blooding on uh, construction sites in Australia? <laughs> That, that is true. Actually, I do reference it in the book. Um, a lot of my family left, a lot of cousins across Australia. They left in the early 70s, actually. And I went over, um, worked on the construction sites. This would have been 1980, 81. And the first thing I did before I could work, I had to go and get my Builders Labourers Federation card. Um, There's a pre-entry closed shop, as we'd call it. That came back. This was before I should add some of the uh, deregistration issues with the <laughs> Labourers Union. But I got I got a pretty good I got a pretty salty education out of that. I can tell you, I can assure you there was uh, it was quite a steep learning curve I was on. But it was it was some of the best education I've had in the labour movement actually. And you then worked uh, for Tony Blair for a while. You were one of his videos on people with the uh, trade union movement. And yeah, yeah, basically what happened. I came back. I went to college then when I came back to the UK, and. Uh, moved around a bit, went to America, came back. And then rather than going to the academia, there was a job in the research department of the party. This is when we, this was in the the days of opposition in the early two, 1990s. And I got to know Tony Blair, who's our shadow employment spokesman. I was dealing with the union links, labor law, inter, individual and collective rights. And then when we won in 97, I was fortunate enough to go in and my job in Downing Street uh, for Blair was uh, around introducing the minimum wage, rights of work. It was a fantastic period, fantastic period. And then 2001, I got elected for Dagenham in East London and I've been there ever since. We've had a few boundary changes. Um, but yeah, it's been quite a sort of, we're in a pretty bad state of affairs at the moment. We've lost four elections in 11 years and we had some rough elections just last week. So it's been a bit of a, it's been a bit of a, you know, high wire act throughout, really, but we're not we're not in a good place at the moment. No, and that's true of social democratic parties around the world. I mean, uh, uh, the uh, French socialists are uh, nowhere to be seen. Uh, Italy, the left, seems to be in terrible strife. Uh, it looks as though in Germany, the SPD is trailing the Greens, uh, and in uh, the United States, uh, Biden got over the line, but with Trump picking up millions more votes than he had beforehand. Uh, so, uh, so we'll get in a moment to uh, some of the big challenges of, uh, of the left. But I wanted to get you to talk a little bit about the local context, because one of the things I love about the way in which you think is that so much is, is grounded in history and grounded in place. Um, you say that work and Dagenham are synonymous. Tell us about that. 
Well, this is our hundredth year. Dagenham really was created in 1921. I'm doing a, a project now about the history. It's, it's our centenary. So, I'm, but in one sense, Dagenham tracks the the dynamics of the hundred years of British capitalism. You know, because it's Dagenham is synonymous with Ford. It was um, Ford Dagenham plant was opened in uh, well, 1931. Um, and at the time, it was the first part of the first, you know, first multinational, actually. It was yeah. a, a real pioneering place, um, huge battles, both in North America, um, Dearborn, as well as in Dagenham for union recognition. And then in one sense, Dagenham was showcased post-war as the height of working class virtue in terms of stability as a community. But then we witnessed Thatcherism, deindustrialization. There used to be 43,000 workers on the Dagenham plant. Now there would barely be 1,500 directly employed. We witnessed deindustrialization, the right to buy. It was the biggest council estate in the world in terms of public housing. It was created to clear the slums of inner East London. Lloyd George talked about building um, homes for heroes. Um, and Dagenham was synonymous with that. Uh, the dignity of the working class through some clearance and and automotive manufacturing. And so it's been a really bumpy ride, really, the last few years. But now we're literally rebuilding Dagenham again through new film studios, relocating universities. We're trying to transition the Ford Motor Company into um, uh, electric vehicles beyond the combustion engine. Um, it's we're, we're building the markets of London into Dagenham. It's a really big relocating thousands and thousands of decent, well-paid jobs. So actually made in Dagenham is being sort of, um, is a term we're using again. Whereas when I first started, it looked like our best days were behind us. Now there's a really interesting period ahead, partly driven by innovative labor, local government, civic leadership, which is compared to our national plight, we could learn from what we're doing at local level. And politically, you've seen uh, some pretty strong forces moving against Labour in Dagenham. Uh, you describe it in the book as being the top uh, Tory target seat in London. Uh, you had a 70% leave vote in the, the Brexit referendum. Uh, the right. British National Party has uh, targeted da Dagenham. Uh, why is it that, though, that uh, Labour has, uh, has, has struggled in a place like yours? Well, it is. I mean, it's often used as a sort of as a similar uh, community to Youngstown, Ohio, to signal what was happening with mm. Trump and the Rust Belt going to the sort of populist, right? We had uh, 2006 to 10, we had 12 British National Party councillors on our local council, local civic administration. It was the front line in an epic fight across the whole country against the fascist right in 2010 to 2014 um, we successfully beat them and by beating them um, we destroyed them actually nationally as a global force but we sort of arguably hit a red wall 10 years before it was quite a popular term you know Dagenham was the fastest changing community in Britain um, the reality was it was growing and changing dramatically but and I'm sad to say Labour was in government we took it for granted a bit as one of our traditional heartlands we were pro occupied with the bellwether marginal seats in what we call middle England and the sort of there was a sense that the working class had nowhere else to go and they they did they fractured off and started supporting different forms of far-right populist movement this was sort of 
showcased in a Brexit vote in the referendum in 2016. As you say, we had 70% leave vote. Um, for the last 11 years, we've been a pretty marginal seat. We've managed to hold on. We're quite well organised. Um, just the last election, we were scheduled to lose by about 4,000, but we hung on. But it has been difficult. And that's why I sort of use it as a sort of portal into some of these wider debates shaping um, progressive politics um, and the rise of authoritarian populism, because this is sort of feeds on the back of a, a disgruntled working class sentiment. Let me give you an example. There was a poll out in the UK just last week, which said that amongst social classes, C2DE, the traditional working class, Labour's 36 points behind, 36 points behind. Um, now, that's my constituent. That's, you know, that is what we would always assume to be the traditional base of the left is sort of, as you'd say, go gone walkabout a bit. And how do we rethink what that is all about? So I sort of use Dagenham to try and showcase a series of arguments. And the book is not... The book is trying to make an argument because what's happening in Labour, I don't know, there, there must be an equivalent debate in the ALP. It's almost the party is changing by stealth and we're not really having a debate about it. It's changing and people are quite aggressive now saying that the working class is gone as our base and there is a new progressive coalition out there which we, we should inhabit as our own new base um, without even discussing the terms of this transition. So that's why I sort of make an argument to say, be careful what you wish for here, because I don't see there's a winning coalition on this new sort of picture that's presented. And it goes against what the party was actually created to be and who it was for. So um, I simply try and make an argument to try and jump into this debate and try and say, um, well, let's contest this. This because it seems to me there's a train that's left the station in terms of the British Labour Party and we, we need to sort of really think through the consequences of some of these moves. Sorry, there's a building truck just outside my flat now. So. Not at all. We've got uh, work going on. This is, uh, this is terrific. Um, but uh, a lot of what you talk about seems to be brought out in uh, Tom Piketty's new best bestseller, Capital and uh, Ideology where he documents that right across a whole lot of uh, uh, advanced countries, there's been this shift of parties to the left from being parties that predominantly represented lower educated voters to parties that represented higher educated voters. I was just looking at Piketty again before our conversation today. Uh, he says in the 1950s, British Labor uh, was uh, 30 points behind among the highest educated voters. Uh, now British Labor is 10, 10 percentage points ahead among the highest educated voters. So, and that, you know, much the same tr is true of uh, Germany, France, Australia, New Zealand, uh, and the, the United States. Uh, but uh, somebody who took an alternative view of yours, and, and I guess I should play devil's advocate, would say, well, education levels are going up. So doesn't it make sense for parties of the left to chase a growing constituency in higher educated voters. Absolutely, and that is one of the arguments. I mean, it almost gets to the degree that people are suggesting in every defeat there's a victory, you know? And I, there's a sense of, there's a sort of demographic determinism to this in the sense that if we can just hold the line, we can transition from these old heartlands to these new heartlands, and we have age, culture, um, knowledge work all on our side. So there's a sense of technological inevitability alongside demographic 
transition and older people are dying, newer people will be around for longer. Um, so what's there not to like? Well, I would question firstly, whether there is a coalition outside of certain university towns and certain urban environments to sustain a Labour victory anytime soon. So even on the own terms of the political optics, it's questionable to me. But there's a deeper question around political parties are built around traditions of justice. They are informed by public philosophies around who they are there to represent, a sense of economic transformation, uh, on behalf of working people has always informed the Labour tradition. And I just simply make an argument that we should be careful what we jettison without even thoroughly debating it. Not just on electoral terms, because I don't think there's a coalition there to win, but also on ethical terms around... The, the Labour, let me give you an example. The Labour Party now is 75% of our membership comes from social classes ABC1. Um, I think we had 2 million more voters from social classes A, B, C, 1 compared to social classes C, 2, D, E, the working class versus the middle classes. Um, the seats where we're winning are increasingly middle class ones and we're losing across what we euphemistically call this red wall. Um, and there is a fundamental change occurring. This was Brexit was a symptom of this. It wasn't a cause of it. These are long term. We've been debating this for 20 years, um, but now it's sort of propelling forward this argument. So we might almost be in a situation where in a year or two, the Labour Party has fundamentally changed. And some are arguing even now that we should rechristen it as the radical liberal party or the progressive party or even a young people's party to match these demographic changes. Um, you're right. Pic Piketty calls it the Brahmin left, you know, that, that sense of of liberal, uh, educated, progressive uh, coalition that are dominating now. My question is, is this inevitable? Or is the, does this signal a failure of social democratic parties to renew themselves so it's a symptom of decay rather than a future advancement? And I would suggest it is. I'm, I'm quite taken by a series of arguments put forward by Michael Sandel, who's argued that post-war social democracy lost its ethical character, its desire to regulate and civilize capital and became static, managerial, technocratic under the Blair, Clinton, Schroeder era. And so accepted too much of the neoliberal uh, uh, compact ushered in by Reagan and Thatcher, and it has not successfully renewed. So it hasn't got the ethical or the moral resources to deal with the issues we that surround us today. And we have to rediscover an ethical energy in terms of our desire to regulate the market and confront capital. And we do that by reestablishing a politics of work. I say an emphasis on work because one of the key components of the debate in the UK, I'd be very interested to know if it's the same in Australia, is a lot of the more fashionable left in the UK that are arguing for this radical transition also say that Labour should be the post-work party, right? It should celebrate a world where the, the robots are coming, the fourth industrial revolution is inevitable, um, that work is inherently degrading. So we should foresee a future of liberty and abundance driven by technological change as we move to an era described as post-capitalism. And this will happen naturally as we transition through the gears of late capitalism. 
I think that's more a case of left futurology rather than strategic insight. And I'm weary of that sort of uh, thesis because I think it's a sort of almost magical thinking of the type which could end the party for good. So these are so let's come issues. To that, to, to that in just a moment. And I'm very keen to dive into your views on universal basic income as well. But just, just flesh out for me a little bit more about what a politics of work looks like. You've got your your good work covenant. Um, yeah. What sort of what sort of issues would a, a work focused Labor Party be, be be talking about? Well, I go I go into quite a bit of detail. I mean, some of it is around well, a lot of it is around the modern degradations of work that we see all around us. This is um, obviously. The gig economy is centre stage in a lot of that, but we have delivery drivers running around averaging two pounds an hour through the course of their shift. Well, their chief executive is making 500 million when floating the shares. You know, we've just had 500 British gas workers laid off because under the guise of the pandemic and COVID, they're firing them and then rehiring them. There's this fire and rehire practices going on everywhere across the UK at the moment where people are just getting re-employed on worse employment conditions. We've had the Supreme Court of this country just recently say that some of the employment practices in companies like Uber are inherently unjust. This is the Supreme Court of the country and saying that politicians have a moral um, obligation to rectify some of these modern degradations in work. So there is a sense that these are not the notion of a politics of work is not an anachronistic, nostalgic notion. It's highly contemporary in terms of the modern dispossessions inherent in uh, our economic systems. Uh, um, also, I would argue that a lot of the problems with Labour over the last 20 years is that it's neglected a politics of work. It's become too obsessed with certain trajectories and technological assumptions around the working class disappearing through automation. This is this is also not just on the Corbyn left over here, but it was also a hallmark of the Blair left, actually. So we tend, we tend to invest too much on the inevitability of technological change rather than seeing this as political choices that confront us as political parties. So what I try and do is just to say there is nothing inevitable here. There is nothing deterministic, both in terms of technology or demography. And we should actually think about where we can intervene to humanise work, to create good work, to use labour individually and collectively, labour law, so that we can re-regulate certain employment abuses, that we rethink about how we reward and value work. Obviously, within the pandemic, the dignity of the work, the carers, the delivery drivers, the transport workers has been centre stage. My constituency is situated in what's been called the centre of the COVID uh, triangle, who was the highest in the second wave in the country because people were working. They were having to work to care, they're key public servants. And the interesting thing for me has always been the jobs that involve the most care for each other are those that are rewarded least. And what does that say yeah. in terms of a comparative index of what we prioritise in our societies compared to high finance or the city or whatever? So I try and go into some of these questions of value and reward in terms of work, rebuilding our vocations, um, our callings in terms of those um, 
those work professions that need to be honoured and rewarded and respected and supported through uh, training, education, employment protections, whether they are key public servants should have a priority in terms of access to key public services, in terms of valuing the work they do. There's a whole host of things. I, I go back into a thing that we've never really embraced in the UK, forms of industrial democracy that are widely prevalent across mainland Europe in terms of worker directors and trying to democratise work. So there's a whole sort of, what's really there's a whole menu of policies. Yeah, what's really interesting to me is you don't just spend time talking about the way in which work could be better. You also remind us that uh, most people enjoy their job. Uh, you say that 79% uh, of workers say, uh, say they uh, find their work interesting. Uh, and that uh, its work isn't merely a source of income and that there's something very different to, uh, to, to getting uh, 80,000 a year from a job as distinct from getting 80,000 a year uh, from, uh, from, from, from the government. Uh, tell us now about your uh, views on universal basic income. Uh, I remember a, uh, one, uh, one uh, British Britain, I was talking to once describing it as being uh, turbo welfareism. Uh, what do you think about it? Well, <laughs> well, uh, I can see very good arguments for it and very good arguments against it. I mean, I think it is over here. It's it was seen as a uh, a solution to automation before the pandemic, and then it was seen as a solution to the pandemic. It's seen as a sort of magic bullet to all sorts of contemporary challenges. And I say that, okay, let's unpack this a bit and go through what we're trying to achieve, what assumptions inform the different arguments in favour. So, for example, if I was, um, um, I don't support the universal basic income advocated by Milton Friedman or Charles Murray, right? But they would embrace forms of universal income. I'd also don't embrace the universal basic income of a lot of the tech pioneers who see it as sort of offsetting their own culpability for structural unemployment you know it's a sort of get out of jail card for them um, except they're not even also, willing to pay taxes right i mean well, if, you're, if, you're not, if you're not going to pay the taxes it seems a bit rich to be uh, uh, advocating the world's biggest spending program absolutely absolutely and then there's a bigger debate there about their own responsibilities in terms of uh contribution in terms of modern and that's why some of the Biden arguments about global tax justice are really interesting that are coming to the fore right, now. Right. But as an aside, going back to the UBI, um, I can see arguments for it. I want a more humane social security system. Um, does that mean, is that universal basic income? I wouldn't suggest it is. But the usual argument that is used in the UK it is because of this same technological inevitability inevitability about the end of work. Now, if work was ending, there would be a strong case for UBI, but I see work as an inherently political terrain that can be shaped by politics rather than its inevitability to be degraded and declining. And I see it the way it's been used in a lot of the left debates as a, just a sort of, I give up policy, right? And just walking off the park about contesting the dignity of labor. And it's for arguments around the dignity of labor that I think we should be very cautious about seeing it as a panacea. And instead we should get our hands dirty with the more difficult task of rather than maximizing welfare, just saying we're gonna build dignified work, even argue that it should be almost a constitutional right for every citizen to have decent, work because I see I follow the sort of 
Hannah Arendt argument that work is key to our sense of purpose and who we are as human beings. And the really interesting thing, if you see a lot of the debate around work, it's all about its de degradation, about how it offers nothing. But actually, if you look through all the data, work still is an incredibly key ingredient in terms of what we value and what we cherish, what we desire. And for huge, there's a large majority who still extract all of that from the work they do. So there's a danger in having one sort of certain sectors of the economy. We, we are reading too much in terms of how we're understanding the whole of the economy in terms of people's work and what they get from it. And I think there's a danger in politics that we just play on one part of the pitch, you know, and we don't, we lose our wider perspective. And so we need to, without doubt, have a much tougher menu of remedies in terms of some of the modern degradations of work, but also acknowledge its vital ingredient to who we are and the lives we wish to be live and um, how we want to live rewarding lives of which contribution and work are vital elements in terms of a, a life well lived. So if you look at uh, what the Blair government did uh, with reference to your focus on work, uh, they introduced the national minimum wage, uh, they ramped up uh, tax credits for in-work tax credits, uh, making making work pay, as uh, Clinton uh, put it uh, a couple of years earlier, uh, up to nearly 2% of GDP. So you know, pretty substantial in-work right. tax credit. Uh, but you have a critique of, of Blair where you say that he moved from giving ethically grounded speeches, uh, you say much in the tradition of a sort of uh, Martin, Martin Luther King, John F. Kennedy, uh, also to some extent... Uh, uh, Bush and Obama uh, towards what you describe as uh, selfish utilitarianism. Uh, how did that happen? How did New Labour uh, go, go off the rails? The, the, what I try to do in the book, because I think you know this actually, because you follow some of these debates, Blair is very much seen as a pariah for much of his own party. You know, <clears throat> he's seen as, despite the fact in the last 10 elections, we've only won three and all of them were won by Tony Blair. Um, we fail to own our own victories and we fail to understand our own defeats because we are now so factionalised and we fail to understand the potency of Blair, how powerful he was, nor, mm. but also why he declined. And I try and offer a, a different analysis which, which says it's not an all or nothing thing about Blair, good or bad. It's really a question about how he changed as a politician, which is a story that's never really been told. Now, I was quite fortunate. I was quite close to him for many years. Less close, it should be added, in the latter years. But um, I was with him in the very early days, and he had this incredible... He could reconcile what I would call economistic and ethical elements across the left, and he did it in this brilliant way. And that's always been the fault line within the history of the UK left has been the economistic and the sort of moral or the ethical traditions. He blended it together. He knew exactly what he was doing, by the way, as well. Um, and he, 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 he used spiritual resources that had available to him, his uh, moral or ethical reading of both scripture and politics to blend a really powerful um, politics that connected with people in the mid nineties and right through to the mid-2000s. Um, even after the Iraq war, he still won an election. But the real story is the changing within it, especially in the second term, where he moved towards a more transactional 
utilitarian politics of what worked rather than some of the moral or ethical forces that drove him as an earlier politician. In his biography, he skates out of, over all of this. It's a very functional biography in that he sort of neglects all of the elements that made him such a compelling political figure, actually. It's a really interesting exercise of making sure the waters cover you over almost as a policy. He almost hides his early power, powerful political persona. It's almost too painful for him, I would interpret it. Maybe that's being over-psychological in terms of my assessment of it. But it's a really interesting story that's not really told. So I try and separate it out by looking at this gradual transition of a political persona towards more of a utilitarian, tactical, managerial figure, less as a powerful, emotional character, you know? And I think that's, he would argue he was better by the end, right? He, he learned how to do the job. I would say he lost something that was really important in terms of his overall political character in that journey. And he actually calls his biography a journey, which I think is quite an interesting thing because he, he forgets the departure point in this journey, you know, and he, um, he, he covers it over. And I was quite keen to just remember what a fantastic politician he is and was because now in Labour, we have this zero sum view of him which lacks nuance and complexity. So therefore we can't own our own history, right? And so therefore we cannot excavate what was so powerful within that new labor story. And I think that is to, unless we do that, unless we can own our own recent history, I don't think we're gonna be able to win again. Yeah, I would have thought of you as being more from the left tradition in the party than Blair, but sharing with him that that love of ethics and the love of history as well um but yes i the the worst of new labor for me is embodied in uh, uh philip gould's unfinished revolution uh, which has all these sort of ad man to discussions of mondeo man and the kind of the the triangulation of voters that seems completely removed from any sense of ethics and values and uh, and the history of the uh, of the party uh, you've made your there's an interesting point here as well, Andrew. There's an interesting parallel with the ALP because I was always interested in Keating as a complex, complex political figure. And um, his, his ethical anchorage is a really interesting story as well that is often, he, he told it quite well actually, but that's a, in terms of how do you understand these rounded, very powerful political complexities, you know, like Blair and Keating, because we tend not to um, fully comprehend the, the complexity of them and in so doing we diminish ourselves as a labor project actually by failing to own the the richness of these characters yeah i mean i've known half a dozen australian prime ministers but keating has a level of complexity that is just off the charts from anyone else i mean he's right. uh, he, he is here is sui, sui generous um, right. let me move now from your critique of blair to blair's, blair's critique of the labor party uh, he had a piece uh, the, the other day in uh, the New Statesman in which he uh, uh, said uh, uh, the radical progressives aren't sensible and the sensible aren't radical. And he says today's politics has an old fashioned economic message of big state tax and spend, uh, which isn't particularly attractive and the right can do anyway, uh, combined with a new fashioned social cultural message around extreme identity and anti-police politics, which for large swathes of people is voter repellent. And he also makes, uh, makes the argument that 
the right evinces a pride in their nation, while parts of the left seem embarrassed by the very notion. How much of Blair's critique do you agree with? What do you disagree with? Well, my departure point is always to inspect it quite systematically, what he's saying, because it's always worth listening to. I mean, the interesting thing about Tony Blair, he's had a, sounds terribly instrumental view, he's had a very good pandemic. He's been really on the front line, pushing public policy innovatively in terms of how we can create vaccines, antidotes, what the uh, public messages should be, the public health stories. He's been really on the front line in terms of the public debate in the UK and actually internationally. So he's, um, there is a sort of rehabilitation occurring. This intervention is a very powerful one, as, as you would always expect with Blair, brilliantly constructed. It's a very well put together series of arguments. I would say that what he tends to neglect, I mean, the, one of the criticisms I would have of what Tony does is it is still too much around the cross currents of the 90s politics rather than more contemporary feel to it. Um, if we were creating new labor today, it'd be very different to what we did in the mid 90s, right? But I think still there is, it is a bit too much situated in time for him. Um, and I don't think he's, for example, in the quote you just made, I think there is a much greater case now for a much more muscular series of state interventions that he would accept in terms of public policy, like around work politics or anti-poverty strategies or inequality agendas. Um, I think there is a greater case for state regulation across certain sectors, even ownership that he would not countenance around some sectors. I think there is a much greater need for a radical realignment of our constitutional settlements here that he would ever envisage, even though he did start well with London and Scotland and devolution. There's a much greater agenda in the UK now towards a more federal arrangement that you would find familiar in Australia. That is much more necessary. So on a whole series of fronts, there's a need for a greater creative state, something that I don't think he would accept, nor I think would he accept some of the tax justice measures that I think would be the hallmark of a modern new Labour agenda, which I don't think he would go towards. So I think now, and you can see this in Biden, because Biden's agenda in terms of his uh, stimulus packages, what he's looking to in terms of his jobs packages, they're very different to a Clinton era, even an Obama era. Actually, you could argue that Biden is becoming a much more, what we would usually call more left-wing interventionist public politician than either of his two democratic predecessors. And I think that goes with the time. He's a greater reader of the moment than arguably than Tony is. And I think Tony Blair is probably investing too much again on technology as a route out rather than politics and the contested spaces around work and poverty and inequality. So on a number of fronts, it's a sort of, I really welcome always his interventions we have to rehabilitate his role and contribution in and around Labour without, without accepting hook, line and sinker all of the arguments, because I think it's underwhelming in terms of some of the statecraft necessary to deal with some of the challenges we face today. Yeah, I thought it was a better diagnosis of the problem than proposed, a set of proposed solutions. Uh, but you, you talked about Biden, which I think is fascinating because Biden in 
picking up some of that energy of the uh, the FDR New Deal uh, really is focusing quite squarely on what you're talking about, John, uh, announcing uh, an infrastructure package and trumpeting the fact that it will create a lot of jobs that don't require a college degree. Uh, that's quite different from uh, a sort of tr uh, another focus which Labor parties have taken in the past, where you know, I think it's I think it's Blair in one of his speeches says, "What's the answer to to, uh, to uh, uh, these sorts of disruptive forces?" Three answers: education, education, education. Right. But Biden's right. not taking that approach. He's saying, "You've got the skills you've got, and I'm going to give you give you the jobs that you need." And I, I, you see, I was sort of not. I was getting slightly melancholic finishing this book because I was thinking, "How do we?" weave together these different parts of a progressive coalition as we've lost again and we were plummeting in the polls we got boris johnson who is an extraordinary political figure and we're seeing a dramatic reconstitution of class forces on the right actually of politics in the mm. uk and i was becoming quite despondent about the ability of us to weave together a coalition across our new middle class and our traditional base and then along comes biden a sort of older, centrist, gaff-prone guy who's been the insider for, you know, the Beltway politician for so long. And he is weaving together this bold, imaginative path where he's talking about 18 million jobs, jobs you can raise a family on, which I thought was a really interesting phase, unionised jobs. He's talking about major yeah. stimulus. Most pro-union president in decades. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, that FDR element, I'm really interested in the FDR element, not just from the 30s, though, because in the 40s, in his State of the Union speech of 44, he started talking about new constitutional, economic and social rights, the right to work, the right to be housed, the right to education, health, the right to security. And I think there's a rich scene there for a left politics today, a progressive politics that can weave together what in America would be the liberal East and West Coast and the Rust Belt. In the UK, it would be our red wall and our, you know, university or urban centres. There's an equivalent in Australia between the urban, you know, environments, university areas and some of the more traditional country and sort of suburb, suburban. Um, it's, there is an agenda there. It's almost hiding in plain sight now with Biden. You know, and the question is, have we in the UK the wherewithal to try and out trump some of our binary traps that we're living in? We're, we're in these traps at the moment. Can we transcend them? Can we get out from under? And I find the Biden story a compelling one, actually, a really compelling one. And I can see a route for us and Keir Starmer, our leader here to think through new forms of citizenship about new economic and social rights for all of our fellow citizens, which could inspire across all parts of the country and reunite in terms of age, education, geography, leave, remain in terms of Brexit. Because these, there's almost like a canyon down the country now in terms of these big divisions. And a lot in my party are saying, well, we'll just choose one side of the pitch now. We'll just, we'll just, just double down on the Remain side. They literally say our party lives in Romania, referring to the Brexit vote. And we should be the party of those with degrees, the educated, the young, as we've talked about before. And that is a very big bet. That It's a very big bet for the future of the party. And I really like and find it quite inspiring 
the the Biden plan and the strategy, which is pulling together and retaining a coalition of progressive and traditional forces. Yeah, and you're, the, the Romania strategy seems particularly dubious given what's happened in Scotland and the north of England. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, uh, Biden's doing that off the back of Trump being unable to pass an infrastructure package. Um, both our parties are up against conservatives that have moved a long way from their traditional small government roots. Uh, both Boris Johnson and Scott Morrison have uh, active, actively jettisoned the idea of uh, surplus budgeting. They're going. They're, they're willing to run large deficits to spend a lot. Uh, does uh, does the sort of strategy you're advocating become more difficult outside the United States? Yes, I think the answer is yes. It is very difficult because we there is a sense that we are being crowded out a bit here because of our. Uh, I don't know what. The Morrison, I was going to ask you about this, actually, about how you handle the Morrison, because the Johnson challenge for us is quite difficult because part of our party wants to say same old Tories. You know, you can't trust the Tories. Tory sleaze. They've always been the same. You know, the party of Margaret Thatcher, et cetera, et cetera. Well, palpably, they're not the party of Margaret Thatcher. They are believers in the big state. They are trying to prioritise a totally different part of the landscape geographical landscape to Margaret Thatcher, there's a much greater focus on working class, what you would call battlers, I suppose, in the old, in the old days, that's some of the constituency that, that Boris Johnson's really targeting very effectively. Um, this is a very different party to the one I grew up fighting, you know, and the danger is um, in our own righteousness, if we want, you know, we, we ignore these changes that are occurring that create a much more difficult challenge. I would say though, going back to this question of work, the one area where I don't think Boris Johnson's party will go is a real genuine politics of rewarding work because of the hangover of Margaret Thatcher. Her whole strategy was based on um, extraordinary deregulation of labor. And I think that would be the one no-go area. I mean, Theresa May, she set up a review of modern working practices called the Taylor Review and wouldn't accept any of its relatively mild conclusions. The party wouldn't let her. She played around with the idea of industrial democracy, putting workers on boards to try and bolt the working class into a sort of stakeholding model of industry. Mm. The party wouldn't let her. I don't think the party would let Johnson go where I think some of their best thinkers know they have to go, which was to really create a blue collar conservatism for the future um, and that has to be built around some of the things we've talked about union recognition you know um, rights for workers uh, their contractual status in law you know some of these partnership working um, good quality work I don't think they'll be able to go there which creates an opening for us um, but if they were to go there then it would make it much more difficult for us in the future. It's also challenging too given the uh, collapse in the union base and uh more of an issue in Australia than in the UK, right? So you go to around 1980, both of our countries have about half the workforce in a union. Uh, but today you're at about a quarter. Yeah, we're 23%. Now, yeah. yeah, we're close now to a tenth, right? We're not, we're not far um, off, you know, off the United States level. That's the same as America, um, yeah. Right. Yeah, so, uh, so, so that I, I suppose one of my questions is uh, where you see the opportunities to grow the union movement and have unions play a, a bigger bigger role in what you see as 
a central conversation for, for the Labor Party. I didn't realise it was down to North American proportions uh, in it's, Australia. It's a though. couple of percent above. I think, I think wow. it might, it might be a, a, a seventh or an eighth. But, uh, right, because so I because it is interesting that what is interesting to me is that Biden can make a, such a pro-union statement when he's on what ten percent and we're on twenty-three percent and Labour doesn't do that in the UK and it's quite interesting where he can feel liberated and strong enough to make these sorts of positions, whereas we. We can't yet. Um, I think we need to. But I think we also need to incubate new forms of organisation. Um, and this is a big challenge for the unions themselves, by the way, as well. Um, the gig economy poses all sorts of um, challenges organisationally. Um, some There's some new unions that are uh, emerging that are on the front line in terms of these battles. I'm more interested in how we can translate some of the organised terms and conditions in employment into unorganised sectors. And we have a few proposed around labour law that can do that in the UK um, so that you can gain the benefits of unionism, the sort of exit voice mm. arguments, you know, in terms of having, um, without necessarily having to go through the whole union organisation recognition laws. There are also a case for new types of recognition. We introduced some in 98, 99 that didn't really work. Um, so there is unfinished business there, but it is a Big challenge, a big challenge. That's why I'm quite interested in a lot of the voice at work arguments rather than single channel union representation in terms of trying to work through some of the industrial democracy avenues, co-determination in the UK, which might for, for workers, and that, that could challenge the traditional single track union routes to autonomous free collective bargaining to get your voice so it's a challenge for us um it's a challenge for the tuc um but there are some interesting uh pilots underway now that we might be able to learn from in the next couple of years i'm not sure if it's the same over the uk with uh, um, australia with the gig economy organizations but there's some good pioneers now that are trying to chart some new direction yeah absolutely so unions new south wales has uh, done some good work with air tasker um, there's the Young Workers Centre, which is set, set up organising, using online tools to organise pickets against sexual harassment at certain workplaces. Uh, there's uh, unions that are focused on a Netflix model, pay ten, pay $10 a month, so uh, lowering, lowering the, uh, the barriers to entry. There's a lot of really creative experimentation in the, in the union movement, which I think is, uh, is, is really, really positive for, uh, for how it might play a part in the renewal of, of the, the left broadly defined. Uh, we, but this is, you know, really bringing, bringing our parties back to being small L Labor parties uh, and making quite clear that, that they're not social democratic parties, isn't it? Well, yeah, I mean... We or they're have more this, Labor uh, than social democratic. Well, and that, yeah, and I think... And that is... That's where the sort of rubber hits the road a bit for me in, in because there are some fundamental character issues involved in the type of politics you're doing there you know um i quite like this is where um i quite like a politics that is rebuilt around questions of human dignity rather than identity and that seems to me to be quite a useful way of rethinking some of the challenges ahead um and that rebuilds a sense of fraternity and solidarity 
solidarity in a politics and also a sense of community. I know you've done uh, a lot about rethinking the terms of community, and that seems to me to be the next bit I want to go on to after the question of labour is the question of community in this sort of politics, you know, and where we go. I just go back on the, the Netflix model of union membership. So really, interesting. a few years ago, we tried with this idea of you pay a sort of your insurance ticket into a net pool of the of, of a federated model without a specific union or sector, and then it's redistributed from the TUC as some sort of insurance. We couldn't get the unions to go with that for certain protective reasons in terms of their own organisations, but there must be some model because you have the technological wherewithal now to create some sort of insurance pool around a reimagined unionism for the future. Yeah, and I know the Australian Council of Trade Unions has been looking at how to make membership more portable across unions, get rid of problems of demarcation dispute. Uh, you don't have to, you shouldn't have to figure out which is the right union for you. You should just be able to just say, I want to join the union and someone, someone else figure that out. And, and we'll, we'll get there. It's just taking, taking a little while. Right. But that is, uh, you could see the future there in terms of some sort of passporting through your portfolio yeah, of work. Yeah. And, you know. But tying together a lot of what we've talked about tonight, John, really is that your, your love of history and of the importance of the histories of our movements and the histories of our, of our countries, uh, where you talk about uh, uh, the importance of the nation. It's very much in the, the notion that we need to, as progressives, not be about blowing the system up and starting again, but about a love of country and a, lo and a love of tradition and providing voters with a sense of continuity. And, you know, for me, that was what was best out of Blue Labor. Uh, there are elements of Blue Labor which seem to uh, uh, play footsie with, uh, with, with in intolerant anti-immigration forces, but the best yeah. of it was which were the, the, the part that was grounded in traditions. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, I, I loved your... Uh, uh, you had a lovely uh, uh, section in a speech where you talked about uh, the solution to the pauper's grave. Uh, finish off by telling, telling us the, uh, the story of, of how a past Labor government uh, dealt with the indignity that once someone right. died, they would be thrown in a common hole with everyone who died that day. Well, you know, actually, this, this goes right back to how we started this because I remember on an Australian construction site, I was thrown a copy of the Ragged Trousered Philanthropist from an old Scottish union guy who told me to read it. And I was just a guy trying to make some money to have a good time, you know, and uh, it was quite an education. But Robert Noonan, who wrote the Ragged um, Trousered Philanthropist, was Irish, uh, um, who died in a pauper, and was buried in a pauper's grave in Walton, um, uh, cemetery in Liverpool and it was the height of the dispossessions or the indignities of the industrial revolution that you there was no dignity in death you know um, not just in life and uh, his body was subsequently reclaimed and it was literally the early cooperative funeral services that sought to reclaim the dignity of the human being at their moment of death through um abolishing the pauper's death where they were just all tossed into the same bit of land. And so it was that sense of people to coming together through a sense of fraternity and duty and obligation to one another to contest the 
dispossessions of capitalism at the time, that you sought to reclaim the dignity of the person at their moment of transition out of this world. And there's a, such a powerful story about politics in that, in the sense of community, human dignity, of one of the writers of the And ultimately a, a, a government payment was instituted, wasn't it? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And it was, there was a really a interesting story. payment, was it? There was, there's a bearable payment, and there was in the post-war period in the great Attlee government. It went through, it was further consolidated in the Attlee um, piece of legislation in the late 40s. But he deliberately took over the passage of this bill through Parliament. As Prime Minister, there was no need for him to do that because of his emotional connection to this story of the retrieval of the dignity of the person at the moment of death. Um, Attlee is often seen as this, you know, like cardboard, wooden management, managerial figure, but there were deep emotional currents within the man revealed quietly at that moment. So the notion of the pauper's death, we, it is, it, it's a really powerful story of, there was, a, someone wants to say, uh, labor traditions tradition is the democracy of the dead you know you use tradition you should not forget your traditions because if you do that you disrespect the memories of those who went before and we are bearers of traditions you know i take your point about the blue labor thing the idea at the time was so that we'd remember our history and purpose and then it span out into different illiberal way avenues at times which were unfortunate but at its heart was an attempt to remember that sort of continuity in a labor politics that you just carry you are you know you're you know you are your your role is to sort of um, bear it and carry it on to others you know uh, and so that story of the death of Robert Noonan is a uh, is a great story about the indignities of the modern world and the, the need for political action to contest it. And in the end, you and I are uh, team players. We will uh, be with our teams till the very, very end. Uh, uh, we grew up in la Labor. We love the, love the Labor Party and uh, the passion is, uh, is, is to, to see it into government where it can do the, do the most good. Uh, John Crudis, thanks so much for taking the time to share your wisdom, to talk about your fascinating book and uh, uh, to uh, think about some of the challenges and the opportunities that, uh, that the left faces uh, in Britain and Australia and around the world. Thank you very much indeed, Andrew. Lovely to see you again and it's great to talk and I hope to literally be with you again soon. As we say, we're both Labour Party people through thin and thin. <laughs> and on we go. <laughs> Terrific to chat, John. Thank you.